Before the 2000s, fashion vocabulary was largely dictated by established and reputed media publications, Vogue included. Well, I have to say, at Vogue, for as long as I can remember, there are certain words that were verboten. This is Vogue fashion news director Mark Holgate. You don't ever talk about gowns, because that's old and dowdy. And for the longest time, you never talked about bloggers. The term or phrase blogger was not something that was was talked about in polite circles at Vogue. Yet the 2000s was a time when the rules of fashion were bending and breaking. Outside the hallowed pages of Vogue, bloggers had become a driving force of the new fashion landscape. The momentum behind their growing influence became so compelling that Vogue needed to investigate, and Mark Holgate, who was senior fashion writer at the time, set out to cover the story in the March 2010 issue. We actually had this moment of like, ah, oh, I guess it's time to do something about the blogger. And we gathered together a group of bloggers in New York and photographed them. And then I went off and interviewed them all. And it leaked somehow that Vogue was doing a story on the blogging phenomenon. And that the fact that this would even be reported gives you a sense of how monumental it was. The idea that, you know, this August institution, this long established institution like Vogue would be addressing the idea of the blogosphere. It's, it's, it's kind of perplexing now, right? It was somehow big news that we were doing this story. It was indeed noteworthy at the time that Vogue had chosen to give credence to bloggers, but the initial hesitancy to do so was evidence of the push and pull between the old guard of high fashion media and the up-and-coming writers and photographers who self-published online. The rise of bloggers was a distinctly 2000s phenomenon, carving their way into both the history and the future of fashion. Welcome to In Vogue, the 2000s, a podcast about the decade that ushered in a new millennium and redefined boundaries in fashion and society. Alongside fashion leaders, cultural icons and Vogue's editorial team, we'll dissect the decade's most impactful style moments and how they've shaped our culture today. I'm Anna Winter. And I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. Fashion in general was slow to upload to the digital realm, with photos in the stories of the early 2000s largely shot on film and records existing primarily in physical archives. Mark Holgate recalls working in such a world as he was growing his career as a fashion editor. It's, I think, hard for people to imagine now. But when I started working in fashion, nothing was online. Nothing. I mean, you literally had to go to these vast volumes of tiny slides to look at a runway show. You had to look through them through a loop and it was just kind of laborious and time-consuming. Vogue Runway's global director, Nicole Phelps, remembers what it was like to capture fashion shows without smartphones. So prior to 2000, people inside the industry either had to go to the show and draw sketches in their notebooks as the looks went by, or they had to wait till the brand sent out lookbooks, which would come out literally weeks or months after a show. Or you could go to Women's Wear Daily, which was sort of the New York Times of the fashion world, and you'd see a couple of pictures from a show, or you'd go to the New York Times itself, and they'd cover five shows in a day, and you'd have a you'd have a very, very uh, glancing picture of what a fashion show was like if you hadn't been there. 
For young fashion enthusiasts hoping to break into the industry, it took creativity and persistence to seek out glimpses of what was happening in the fashion world. One such fashion fanatic was Tommy Tan, streetwear photographer and blogger. So when I started becoming interested in fashion, this was 1997, it was all about me going to the library, ripping out clippings out of magazines, plastering them on walls, taping episodes of fashion television or fashion file, going to the newsstand, getting the reviews every Thursday. So basically it was this idea of not having things so accessible to me, but having to go out and hunt them down. From there, in 2000, that's when Style.com comes in the picture and I can access fashion through my computer at school. Style.com was one of the first websites to provide front row coverage of all of the top fashion shows. Anyone with internet access was suddenly welcome to view corners of the fashion world that had previously been restricted to only a handful of select ticket holders. This obsession is just going way out of control because it's in digital form and I can print these images, I can bring them home and I'm not tearing out magazines from the library, I'm accessing in a different way. Style.com sort of changed the way fashion people did their job in 2000. It was a really beloved website of the industry because it sort of gave people what they needed, which was instant access to the fashion shows. Hey, Run Through listeners, are you curious about what goes on behind the scenes at Vogue and in the world of fashion? Join Vogue Club, a one of a kind fashion community where you can unlock exclusive access to Vogue editors, industry players, and fellow members, as well as receive expert style advice, tickets to VIP events, handpicked gifts, and so much more. Visit VogueClub.com today and get 20% off using promo code TheRunThrough20. That's VogueClub.com, promo code TheRunThrough20. Style.com became source material for websites like The Fashion Spot, a popular site for industry outsiders to voice their fashion opinions. Here's Susie Lau, blogger and digital content creator. The Fashion Spot was and is a forum where you had different threads of discussion on fashion. And I think, yeah, there was like the sort of beginning of real-time fashion commentating there were different members that were then starting up their own blogs, like either through Blogspot or Typepad, these different uh, blogging platforms that were available and coming up at the time. If you were so opinionated on these boards, then you would take it further and put yourself out there through blogging. Those who voyaged into the territory of creating their own fashion blogs soon became aware of a certain stigma around their work. First, if you had a blog, you were a loser. Let's just start there. This is fashion blogger, illustrator, photographer, author, Garance Doré. It was the very beginning of internet and everybody had a pseudonym. You know, you would never put your real name. The anonymity of the early internet buoyed bloggers like Susie Lau, a.k.a. Susie Bubble, and wunderkind Tavi Gevinson to share their unique and playful perspectives with the world. Here's Susie. I would take mirror selfies, like like a normal mirror selfie like today, and then uploading them onto my style diary. So the blog style bubble was really supposed to be kind of like an amalgamation of that sort of 
outfit documentation and talking about personal style, but then also talking about fashion, like in terms of design, collections, trends, or young designers, which was like something that I was super, super interested in. I thought Style Bubble made a lot of sense because it was basically like seeing fashion and style from my own bubble. It had this feeling of being an outsider and having the perspective of an outsider in a world that was quite insular. It was three weeks before my 12th birthday when I started Style Rookie. That's actress, writer and fashion blogger Tavi Gevinson. I named my blog Style Rookie because I wasn't yet any kind of expert and I didn't yet have a fully developed personal style or sense of what I liked. But it seemed like a blog was a way to kind of chronicle that process and have an audience and the internet be kind of a part of creating a personal style instead of just presenting people like a fully formed thing. While some new voices explored fashion through their own personal style, others turned their eyes to fashion seen on the street. Once again, Garance Doré. When I started my blog, it was called Une Fille Comme Moi, which means a girl like me. So one day my friend says, why don't you come with me to Fashion Week and we'll just look at people coming and going and all that. And I took a camera. So I started taking photos of people. And very soon after, I started posting photos on my website. Meanwhile, Tommy Ton began posting his original photos online as a self-dubbed fashion paparazzi. During that time, which is 2005, this is when the internet was having this moment with blogging and street style photos being circulated around the internet. And I just thought, wouldn't it be really interesting if I took an opportunity to capture this in Toronto? Because I always was intrigued by the way how people wore clothes in real life, as opposed to how it was worn on the runway. So what I thought was, let's create some kind of lifestyle website that captured the retail and party scene and street style scene in Toronto. So that's kind of how Jack and Jill came about. Fashion bloggers like Tommy Ton and Garance Doré brought to the internet the types of photos that had existed in various forms for over a century. Jacques-Henri Lartigue, for example, photographed what ladies wore to the racetracks and parks around Paris in the 1910s and 20s, photos that diverged from the carefully constructed studio portraits that were popular at the time. Among his contemporaries were the Cyberger Frères, a family of artists in Paris who photographed high society in fashionable locales like beaches, ski resorts and racetracks. Their work could be considered part of the street-style photography scene of the early 20th century. In the 1930s, photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson explored his own style of capturing candid photos. And in the 1980s, Jamel Shabazz became a noteworthy street-style photographer in Brooklyn, New York. Perhaps the most iconic photographer to bring street-style photographs into the modern age was Bill Cunningham. He worked on the streets of New York to take snapshots of fashion that inspired him, and his photos ran in the New York Times for more than three decades, most notably in his column On the Street. With Bill's work and others, street-style photography found a home in the pages of print publications. With the emergence of fashion bloggers, it exploded on the internet, bringing the catwalk to the sidewalk. Here's Tommy Ton. Your street style moment was basically what you packed to wear to a fashion show. So I think what people used to define street style in the 90s or 80s was what people were just wearing out and about on the street. Whereas 
in the 2000s, what happened was street style was what people wore to fashion shows. Tommy Ton's site, Jack and Jill, became the digital destination for the fashion photography he captured on the streets of Toronto. Part of Tommy's differentiation was in the framing of his photos, as noted by former Style.com editor, now the global director of Vogue Runway, Nicole Phelps. His distinctive approach was to shoot horizontally, which sort of is not intuitive when you're shooting street style, because, of course, we humans are you know, vertically oriented when we're walking down the street. And he would often focus in on a detail of a look, a handbag, uh, the way somebody left part of their shirt untucked, uh, the ripped part of a jean. It could be anything. I'm really too shy to ask all these people, whether it was Anna Della Russo or the models at the time, to stop and ask for their details because everyone was always in a rush. I didn't realize that at fashion shows. So I just started taking photos as if I was like in nature or something. And that's how the horizontal format started. Tommy's photography began to alter the fashion world, as Nicole Phelps saw firsthand. His pictures became just hugely, hugely popular. When you go back and you talk to people about that time, people really began dressing for Tommy Tan and for other street style photographers at the shows. Fashion had, for a really long time, had been quite insular and for an elite sort of exclusive few. And the people going to the shows, the editors and buyers, while they were dressed in fashion, they weren't the sort of commodity of the shows. It was the looks on the runways. But somewhere in the late 2000s, when Tommy Tan was um, working, the people who were outside the shows became as interesting and sometimes even more interesting subjects than the the looks on the runway because there's something gripping about the authenticity of the look on the street of the fabulous runway piece worn in reality and given personality by the person who was wearing it. As these outsiders rose to prominence within the fashion industry, the once closely guarded doors of the fashion world were open to a wider audience than ever before. The fashion show is like the new red carpet, and it's not so exclusive anymore. With the whole boom of the internet and blogging and Twittering, it's the fact that you can have your voice heard, and once your voice is heard, amazing things can happen to you. Stay tuned for more after the break. Soon, major news publications took notice of bloggers like Tavi Gevinson. I think a couple months after I'd started my blog and it had just gotten more readers and was being written about in different corners of the internet on other blogs, and I got an email from a graphic designer and writer at T, the New York Times style magazine, saying that she wanted to write an article about young fashion bloggers and interview me for it. And that was just the start. Tavi became a preteen with a press pass as more invites flooded her inbox, leading her to cover New York Fashion Week on assignment. And so the first time I went, it was because I had been photographed for the cover of Pop Magazine and they were launching the issue and having a launch party here. And they also 
wanted me to cover shows for their website. And then I think the following season, I went to host segments for fashion television where I interviewed designers and guests at the shows. The decade saw new fashion voices showcasing their abilities on both sides of the camera. Tommy Ton began his blog in obscurity and found himself looking to sites like style.com for inspiration. As Tommy's talent and aesthetic continued to ripen and mature, his aspirations brought him full circle with a new career opportunity. The style.com job was probably the greatest moment of my life. Style.com for me was the Bible in addition to Vogue. And to be a part of that family, it was just such a huge shock. And from there, everything came into place where people knew who I was. So many things happened in that pivotal moment in 2009, as soon as I was the official street style photographer for style.com. And also to feel like I was part of the industry because for the longest time I felt like an outsider. Although bloggers like Tommy, Garance, Tavi and Susie received intimate overtures from the fashion world, they didn't always feel the industry's warm embrace. Here's Tavi again. I think that against the backdrop of a fashion industry full of really established people who had either sort of paid their dues through a media publishing route or had kind of been ushered into the industry through connections. Being a blogger sort of felt like being a reality TV contestant or being a kid in a viral YouTube video or something. She was far from the only blogger to wrestle with feeling like an outsider. Here's Garance Doré. You're a challenger of something. You're new. You're an outsider. You have no magazine. You have no name. Once again, Susie Lau. Let's say like the stereotype was that the print journalist, stylist didn't really understand what blogging was or what the value of digital content was. They were very protective about putting either their work or the representation of images online for everyone to see because they could only see the value of like a beautifully laid out magazine. The new kids on the fashion block continue to make some noise within the hierarchy of fashion journalism. The tension crescendoed during a particularly momentous event, as Mark Holgate recalls. Around 2009, Dolce & Gabbana, at one of their shows in Italy, decided they were going to upend the system and the order of things as they'd been up to that point by having some of the most prominent bloggers of the moment sit in the front row. We were placed on either side of Anna Winter with one person in between. So I was seated next to Hamish Bowles, then it was Anna. And my back is covered in sweat because I was running around outside shooting street style images. And I can't imagine what everyone is thinking behind me. Who is this kid who has a sweaty t-shirt on sitting in the front row with a laptop perched in front of him? Like, what is going on here? Like, it's really interesting. Nothing really changed for the longest period of time. You know, you could go to a runway show and you would see sitting opposite you the buyers of the world, the retailers of the world massed on one side of the room, and on the other side of the room, you would have the press and the media amassed on the other, and that was it. That was kind of the pattern that formed for a runway show for years and years and years. So suddenly, these young people who had 
basically started their own blogs, were self-motivated, they were using their own voice, their own taste, their own talents to put forth their ideas about fashion and the fashion industry into the world, were rewarded by suddenly being given the kind of prime position that had been reserved for people who'd been working for 10, 20, 30 years. So it was this kind of seismic moment where suddenly you thought, okay, things are changing. That show had a noticeable reverberation throughout the industry as its leaders began to recalibrate the role that bloggers would play in the future of fashion. However, for the actual bloggers who'd been granted the front row seats, it hadn't felt like a seamlessly executed transformation. Here's Garance Doré. There was a funny spin on this story. It wasn't the first time ever that I was sitting in front row. I already was sitting front row at a lot of shows. Then I remember very well that that day computers were put in front of us, which we never use computers at a front row. Like, you know, it was just like literally laptops. So you could see right away that there was kind of a press moment that was created, which was also very smart of Dolce & Gabbana. And so I think that it upset a lot of people but that was kind of the goal. There are moments that, you know, move the needle. There was a need for change in fashion. So, you know, why why not sometimes, you know, be the pawn of kind of a bigger game? Here's Susie Lau. They were going for the shock factor of having these people in a first row position, normally reserved for like the kind of editors and chiefs of heritage titles. And that image, I don't even want to imagine like some of the conversations behind the scenes that were like going on in amongst like kind of hierarchies of magazines and editors. Although the traditional press gatekeepers, Vogue very much included, were horrified by the stunt, it proved to be a brilliant move by the fashion house to tap into the shifting tides of the time. Dolce and Gabbana really love pop culture and hooking into the zeitgeist and shaking things up a bit. And it really did sort of shake up the insular world of fashion. And, you know, some people were outraged or faux outraged or, you know, other people just saw it as a turning point, like a changing of the guard. And after that, they were forevermore in the front row. So it snowballed into the influencer culture that we are still living in now. By the end of the 2000s, fashion was decidedly online. It became a form of entertainment within reach for anyone on the internet with the click of a button. And it ultimately gave rise to a new class of blogger types, influencers. The bloggers of the 2000s paved the way for present-day fashion labels using the internet to directly engage with consumers. Here's Nicole Phelps. You could say that the street style photographers gave birth to the influencers of today who hire their own photographers and bring their own photographers with them wherever they go. The street has always been the runway, but really when the street style photographers and bloggers began working, the street really, really became the runway. And eventually that whole business was commodified and, you know, dollars and 
contracts got associated with all of those images too. Bloggers in the 2000s were some of the first fashion outsiders to establish relationships with brands and create deals around the content they would publish. Garance Doré can trace back to the first time a brand recognized her impact on their sales. I remember very clearly starting to take photos of people and mentioning a brand. I think the first one was Isabel Morant or Vanessa Bruno or, you know, one of these French brands. And I remember they called me the day after or sent me an email and they were like, you posted a photo of our T-shirt or our jean and we're sold out. And I think that's when these brands started getting, oh, okay, wow, there is power. People were lining up to get these pants. So that's when I think the idea of influence came about. And I started getting requests for doing advertising on my website. The e-commerce we see today stands in stark contrast to the early alts, when the internet was not considered a destination for clothing or accessories shopping. At the time, if you had a blog, but even for fashion, luxury brands and all that, you would never think about selling something online or having a website and all that. At this time, they would just buy their .com just in case and put an image there. And there was really nothing behind that. Very few of them had online sales or e-shops and all the rest of it. Bringing the industry's attention to the power of the internet and online sales was only one of the countless ways in which bloggers changed the fashion world. When you think about many of the people who were quote-unquote bloggers back in what the very end of the 2000s, have really gone on to do incredible and sterling work and have provided such an important narrative about fashion and also about the industry. This is Vogue editor Mark Holgate. And fashion was up for analysis and discussion and debate and critiquing by everyone who wanted to do it. To me, that moment of democratization is really such a powerful thing and such an important thing to kind of make it less exclusive and make it a less privileged system. Susie Lau once more. I think the advent of fashion blogging really made the fashion industry look at how they were digitizing what they did. So because it came from a point of self-publishing, it kind of put into motion this idea of, okay, everyone can be a content creator. So that then gave rise to the social media platforms. Everyone could be commentating, image making. It was putting those roles into a lot of people's hands. And I think that was probably the biggest thing that fashion blogging kind of set into motion. At its core, Vogue has always been about exalting the creativity of the fashion industry. As the internet and fashion bloggers lowered the barrier of entry into consuming fashion, Vogue and the industry as a whole adapted and celebrated fashion's relevance and new ease of access. I think what it taught me in particular was actually just the need for personal connection and the ability to be deeply committed and connected to an idea of fashion and to be very passionate about that. And I think that's probably something that as We've seen our presence go on to other platforms, online, social, everything over the years. I, I think that sense of voicing oneself within the narrative of 
the bigger context of Vogue is, is something I think that probably has, has been really important. The ripple effects of the blogging movement seen in the 2000s reverberated throughout the following decade as online fashion documentation moved from computers to smartphones. It gave so many people that wanted to be a part of fashion the opportunity to be in fashion. And that's why it didn't feel like it was such a exclusive private members club anymore. People felt like they could join the party. And they sure did. The initial collision of fashion and the internet was only the beginning. As the way users consumed the internet continued to change and become more personalized, so did the relationship between fashion setters and fashion followers. The next decade put a camera and a computer in everyone's pocket, altering the very fabric of fashion and providing a whole new level of global access. Bloggers completely disrupted the way traditional print editors disseminated fashion industry information. In their wake, influencers exploded onto the scene as the latest and hottest content producers. I have to say, at the recent season of shows, I was saying, I wonder if like TikTok people look at us, like how we looked at editors like 10, 11, 12 years ago. And it did really feel like there is this new generation of voice and you definitely have to give way to that because that is how our industry works. You have to acknowledge and, and be curious about this newness and let that flourish. With the ubiquity of social media, models like Carly Kloss, Kendall Jenner and Gigi Hadid were able to connect with the world like never before. Even fashion's biggest night, the Met Gala, gained its own unstoppable momentum with photos of the evening ricocheting around the globe instantaneously. In the 2010s, the most popular brands in fashion responded not only to consumers' demands for more access, but also social accountability. The decade saw the complete digitization of fashion and the rise of fashion's newest power players, the influencers. In Vogue, the 2000s is presented by Anna Winter. From Condé Nast, our showrunner is Jacqueline Jamjoum and Tony Mantia is our associate producer and writer. The series is produced in partnership with Pod People. Head of production, Matt Sav. Director of production, Amy Machado. Production manager, Madison Lusby. Senior producer, Frida Lucas. Associate producers, Mariah Dennis and Morgan Foos. Scriptwriter, Marie McCoy Thompson. Editing, sound design and engineering by Daniel Brunel, Gordon Bramley, Morgan Foos, Sam Mbata, Adam Raimunda and Andy Bosnack. Pod People would also like to thank Persia Verlin, Nikki Stein and Stephanie Bishara. Theme music is composed by DJ Ghost Dad. Vogue's editorial team is Vogue Archive Director Led Borelli Person, Vogue Fashion News Director Mark Holgate, Vogue Runway Global Director Nicole Phelps, Vogue Fashion Director Virginia Smith, Corporate Photography Director for Condé Nast Ivan Shaw, and myself, Vogue International Editor-at-Large Hamish Bowles. Special thanks to Vogue's Creative Editorial Director Mark Guiducci, VP of Digital Video Programming and Development Robert Semmer, VP of Audio Julie Shen, and Director of Podcasts Nico Steele. Thank you for listening to In Vogue. 
until next time.